Welcome to the people of PJC, a project of the Pikesville Jewish Congregation. Being that these days we cannot host each other for Shabbat meals, our hope is that in this space we will share stories that we would usually share around the Shabbat table so that we can continue to grow with each other and as a community. My name is Yechiel Schaffer. I'm the rabbi of the Pikesville Jewish Congregation in Baltimore, Maryland. Our young community has grown over the last decade into a 150-member-strong congregation with passionate, accomplished professionals and many ordinary people with extraordinary stories. In this space, we share some of those stories. Today, I share with you my conversation with Daniel and Sophie Salzberg, two brilliant doctors, wonderful people to speak with, with deeply inspiring stories. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Sophie and Daniel, good evening. It's so great to be able to chat with you guys and to make a few, a few minutes together in the middle of this crazy time. If I could ask each of you just to, I guess, introduce yourselves, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, maybe something that we don't know about you. You go first. Oh, I have to go first. I am I'm a hematologist. I hey, what's a hematologist? What's a hematologist? And I my my sort of subspecialty under hematology, I, although I love all of hematology, is uh, is sickle cell disease, and I I direct the program at Hopkins. I run their adult sickle cell program. How long have you been doing that for? A long time, almost twenty years that I've been wow. at Hopkins building my program. How, how many hematologists are at Hopkins besides you? Hematology is an underrepresented uh, uh, field in medicine. There aren't enough benign. I'm a benign hematologist. I don't, I don't do malignant hematology. Give me the toy. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> What's your dog's so, name? What's your dog's name? So that, the little one is Mimi and the big one is Marble. There too. So they, okay. they want a place on the podcast. <laughs> they, would, they would like, they would like their <laughs> Yeah. So um, there are, I think, seven benign hematologists. And uh, so I'm only, well, I'm one of, one of them that does sickle cell disease, really the only, only adult one that does sickle cell disease at, at Hopkins. And you do research on it, you treat it. Yes. The tripartite mission of Hopkins is to teach take care of patients and do research. So I, I do all of that. And I just got promoted to a full professor recently. Wow. Mazel tov. Yeah. How, how recent? Uh, in the pandemic. So, so in, uh, I think I heard in March. Wow. Mazel tov. Is that the equivalent of tenure or it's. Essentially. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure that's a very big deal. Mazel tov. That's very exciting. Yes. And tell us, share with us something that we don't know about you or that people generally may not know about you. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't cook, but that's, uh, um, I just dislike cooking. Um, I don't know. I'm a Red Sox fan. Daniel Are you and from I, Boston? Uh, I grew up in, right outside of Boston. Yeah. In Brooklyn. So when did, read, when did you leave Boston? Uh, when I went to medical school, I left. I went to college at Brandeis. So I'm a, I went to Maimonides from first to third grade. And then my parents moved us all to public school. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is that I'm a B'nai B'rith girl uh, basketball champion. I have a jacket and everything. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Just say a little bit more about what that means. Well, we probably shouldn't because then it gets the whole thing away. But <laughs> let's just say it wasn't a lot of competition. Let's, let's just leave it there. But I have a jacket and we did win. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> so yeah. As a okay, we'll, girl. We'll yeah. dig into that a little bit more. And where did you go to medical school? Uh, Einstein. Part of, it Einstein. was part of YU at the time. It was sure. YU's medical school. Sure. And then uh, you went straight to Hopkins or you, you had a stop in between? No, I did my residency at University of Maryland. Cause, oh, very nice. Because my husband was in the army, as we like to say in Massachusetts. <laughs> so he was at Walter Reed. Daniel, tell us what you do and something a little bit that we, uh, something we don't know about you that, ha- that has not just been revealed that you worked at Walter Reed. <laughs> so I'm Daniel Salzberg. I am a kidney doctor, a nephrologist. I am the um, chief medical officer of a relatively small dialysis company called Independent Dialysis Foundation. And if you put those initials together, it comes out to be IDF. So I actually work for IDF. <laughs> um, I have the pleasure of working with some fantastic physicians at work, but more importantly, I'm married to a world expert in sickle cell disease. She's incredibly modest and not as forthcoming as I, I would have liked in terms of her world recognition. The reason why she's promoted is because um, she really cares about these patients who are so undercared for and um, okay. needing attention because they've been so poorly treated for decades. And so she really, it's, it's a passion of my wife that is incredible. And she inspires me every day with that, um, with what she Someone does. told me, I don't remember, but someone told me that they were scheduling a conference a medical conference and you couldn't do it because it was on Pesach, Sophie. So they moved the medical conference for you. Well, I don't know about that, but there, <laughs> there was one that was routinely scheduled around that time. And they, they have since changed, changed the timing for all the other people. For who, everyone, for all might, the expert sickle cell like doctors. <laughs> I got it. I got it. But Daniel, tell us, tell us a little bit more about your background. So I actually, it's interesting because I share a lot of similarities in my background with uh, Dr. Ferens. So I was born and raised in Queens, New York. Um, growing up, I wanted to do theater and used to star in the community plays and the, the school plays. And at the tender age, I think of either sixth or seventh grade, my father pulled me aside and said, you know, it's, it's great that you enjoy acting, but you're never going to earn any money in that. Why don't you become a doctor first? And then you can go on to acting. So I, I took his words to heart, but really it was my, my brother who inspired me. He was a, um, he, he still is, um, he'd become a doctor and I kind of followed in his footsteps. I think the world of my brother. And, um, so he was sort of my inspiration. So Sophie hinted at that. She's a Red Sox fan. She didn't mention that we come from a mixed marriage. So I'm a New York Mets fan and she's a Red Sox fan. Oh. So, yeah. But we make it work. I mean, it's, it's difficult and, and people look down on us sometimes, but we, we still make you it work. You only make it work because the Mets haven't been good in years. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. That is very true. Uh-huh. Is yes, true? Uh-huh. it is true. We've been married almost 30 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> that means you got married after, what was it, 86? Maybe. Maybe. I can't remember what year that was. 99. I don't know what you're referring to. 
He's referring something about in something happened in the 80s. I'm Bill impressed Buckner. that I knew that myself. <laughs> yeah, Bill Buckner recently died. Yeah, Bill, Bill Buckner. I heard. I heard. How sad. Yeah. I think there was a memorial in New York for some reason. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, Daniel, tell us a little bit more. So you grew up in New York. You wanted to be an actor. This is your, I think you're the third doctor I'm speaking to. Um, or the fourth, because I just had a conversation with Sophie. Don't Someone worry about it. Putting up fireworks. Here, why don't we go in the other room? Don't worry about it. All right. Um, you're the fourth doctor I've spoken to, and one of the interesting recurring themes is this artistic side. So I, I had the opportunity to give a, a lecture once to um, a group of students, and I entitled the lecture how being a doctor is like being a superhero that we put on our white coat and we are able, we have superpowers. We can ask questions that you otherwise would never ask. You're able to walk into a room, someone you've never met before and have conversations you would never think to have. And, and it's very much like playing a role in a play in that you are, you take upon these, these attributes that you otherwise wouldn't have. So acting and being a doctor, I think, share a lot of similarities and they're, they're quite contiguous. You wouldn't think they are, but they are. And oftentimes you have to be much more engaged than you necessarily want to be. And part of it is being a good actor. It's not, it's not that you're pretending, but you're playing the role. And the other thing that my husband didn't mention is, right, so he works for the University of Maryland, and he teaches, and he is the one that has won teaching awards, he's a great teacher, all of his students love him, he would do this, he would teach on medicine for a month, and he'd get all these cards about, oh, thank you so much, because he's just an amazing teacher. Nephrology is really hard, it's probably, the, the, the nephrologist is probably the smartest doctors there are, because it is so difficult, and but when he teaches it, people get it. Like all the students come and they want to go and be in his session and listen to him because he's such a good teacher. Did both of you imagine becoming doctors or, or and teachers that this was a lifelong goal? And Dan, you, you already spoke to a, a little bit. Yeah, um, since I was six. And what what is it about medicine that, that spoke to the both of you? Conceptually, there's a lot of things that we always say, oh, we want to help people and um, we want to give. And, and that is true, but it's, it's very much a contextual thing. So you have the educational component, the, so science and math and, and the STEM component of it was a huge attraction for me. I'm not sure it was necessarily the same attraction for my wife, but just the thirst for knowledge. I mean, it's just kind of neat that you, we talk about, you know, as I'm always so respectful and, and so enamored with rabbis that they get to, they're so knowledgeable and they learn and they get to always study the things that we are supposed to be studying. Well, I, I can't study that, but um, I, I, it doesn't make sense to me and I, I don't have that same drive to do. When it comes to medicine, like, why don't you want to learn how this works or that works and always asking why, why? It's that, you know, that six-year-old well within all of us who always asks the question, why? Well, medicine is that same thing. You always get to ask, why does this happen? Why does this drug work this way? Why is this disease occurring this way? Why, why, why? And it's always the question that we ask and we're just little kids who are asking questions. Even in the midst of this horrible pandemic, I mean, this COVID thing is, it's fascinating, right? There are parts of it, right? Like, 
people get viruses all the time, but they don't become deathly ill from them. And so what is it about this virus that gets people so deathly ill? It's fascinating. And you sort of want to learn more and understand it. And it causes a lot of clotting, which is a hematology problem. And right, it's kind of a hematologic disease. Fascinating, our body's response to this new virus. It's just sort of amazing. And for me, right, understanding how the body works, I was—I also can't imagine how people go through their whole lives not knowing how their body works. There, there were doctors in many, many generations of my family, except for the, the Holocaust generation, like my dad didn't, that, that generation did not become a doctor, but but his aunt was a doctor and his grandfather was a doctor. And so there had been generations before. And so he really wanted someone to become a doctor. So I, that may have influenced it, but I knew since I was six years old that that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Daniel, you, you didn't share with us one thing that we don't know about you. So, so uh, Sophie brought up, I was in the military for nine years, three months and two days, not that I was counting. Um, and I was honorably discharged as a major from the U.S. Army. So, explain how and where that fell out in your career. <laughs> so I was in college and was applying to medical schools and where where. So I went to I went to college in um, St. Louis in Washington University in St. Louis, and my brother, who I said I enamored, who I think the world of my big brother, had already entered medical school at this point and had built up quite a significant debt. And so we had a conversation, and I think I, I think I misheard what he said. But the way I interpreted what he said was that you can either be in debt with, you can um, owe a lot of money or owe time in the military. So I thought, oh, that seems like a good idea. I can join the military, have them pay for medical school, and then I'll come out of medical school without any debt. And so I applied to a what's called the Health Professions Scholarship Program and fortunately was uh, accepted into a scholarship so that they paid for medical school, but with the caveat that for every year I did medical school, I had to give one year of active duty service. And that didn't account for training. So once I finished medical school, the training that I did, which happened to be, which had to be in the military, didn't count towards payback. So I did residency and then fellowship, and that took about five years. And then after five years, I paid my four years back. I feel like there's a lot more for you to share about your experience in the army. And maybe this is not the space, but you were obviously primarily there in your medical capacity. Were you ever, what's the word? Deployed. Provost. Were you ever deployed overseas? Did, did you ever have to see any action? So again, the, the, the number of nephrologists in the army was so small that they couldn't actively put me on a PROFIS list. PROFIS is the deployment list. So my great deployment was to a MEPS station. Um, and I forget exactly what MEPS stands for. It's medical evaluation, physical, but it's where high school students who want to get into the military are evaluated by the oldest doctors in the world. <laughs> and, and, um, and they're put through all sorts of silly exercises. They have to do duck walking. They do the silliest things, but they do this in underwear. So I, I show up to this duty station and, and, and these very, very wizened, I assume they're smart, physicians looked at me and said, oh, you're an internist. Why don't you take these very tough cases? So they had people who were not necessarily coming out of high school, but had second careers and they're coming back into the they're, they're applying to go into the military for sort of their second career later in life. And they would have medical conditions. So they would have me evaluate them and do more formal evaluations. It became very interesting. But then they called me over once to this young kid and they go, Dr. Salzberg, we've never seen this before. We have a gentleman who has 
three testicles. Well, we'll we'll save that for the next. Okay. <laughs> it's, a <different laughs> it's a funny story, but anyway. Needless to say, I got. Did to, he make it into the army? Was he qualified for the army? Yes, he needed an operation first, but he was fine. <laughs> good. Okay. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. That is. I assume that's an unusual, an unusual case. It, it wasn't. It wasn't what you think, right? It was. There's something easily fixed. I'll snip here. I'll snip there. We're fine. Thank God. Thank God. I, I'm. I'm concerned how often you say that, but, um, but thank God. I, it's Sophie. Um, I want to ask you two things. Um, I want to ask you a little bit to talk about your work. Uh, and your focus and what what you started talking about it a little bit uh, and we've had conversations before about um your work and, and daniel kind of give a hat tip to a little bit but i think it's important to share what the need is what the cause is and talk about why you're so passionate about it uh, let's start there uh well so I, I you know one of the reasons i wanted to become a doctor was to help the underserved i've always had this thing for the underserved um, and people with sickle cell disease, at least in this country, are primarily people of um, African descent. Um, the malaria, uh, the sickle cell trait protects people from malaria. So people with sickle cell traits, they have only one of the abnormal genes, can get malaria, but they're far less likely to die of malaria. And in fact, it's thought that the gene mutation occurred 7,000 years ago in one person. And so that trait, because it's so protective, that gene, which is amazing, right? It, it, it stayed for 7,000 years. You can only imagine how many lives it saved that people had the trait. However, if you have two of these genes, then you have sickle cell disease, which is a pretty miserable, terrible disease that causes pain. Children get strokes. It decreases life expectancy by 25 to 30 years compared to the general African-American population in this country. If you're a young 18-year-old African-American man showing up in inner city Baltimore in a hospital and you say, I'm having severe pain and what we typically treat people with is opioids, so they get very strong narcotics. You can, and there's no objective measure that someone's having crisis. You can't do a blood test. You can't, there's no physical exam finding. There's nothing. So a young black person walks into an emergency room and says, I have pain and I need narcotics. You can imagine how that goes. So every single adult that I take care of pretty much has given a story of where they've been treated like a drug addict when they're in excruciating pain. And so if you see a patient who's having truly a sickle cell crisis, this is not an easy thing to watch. They don't get prioritized in emergency rooms. Um, they're often, right, so in, in Baltimore, gunshots, heart attacks, strokes usually go before. So you're in excruciating pain and having to sit and wait for a bed so you can get pain meds. So pretty miserable and doesn't have to be. So um, I, you know, I've opened a clinic so my patients don't have to go to the emergency room. They have a place to go to, to get treated quickly for pain. And sort of my research, my interest is trying to decrease barriers so that patients can get adequate care. So I've traveled to some places that um, that where it's prevalent, like the Middle East, but not Israel. So I've been to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, where they have large populations of people with sickle cell disease. And the first thing the patient will tell you is they 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 don't get treated with any respect when they show up in the emergency room. Right? There's there's the race issue, but there's also this this pain narcotic issue on top of it. So there's bias towards these patients because of what they need to treat their pain, and there's bias because of the color of their skin. So it's it's pretty miserable. But we're trying to make it better for patients. I mean, it's clearly so multifaceted in how you 
Well, that's not, at all. right. No, I mean, and that's why I, I, so people with sickle cell disease, it affects every organ in the body. You have to, you have to understand medicine to take care of this patient population and they can get very, very, very sick. So you have to make decisions often quickly about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And they're complicated and, but they also are socioeconomically in lower they, they're only 40% of the patients are employed. Most of them, the social determinants of health is what we usually call them. I may be worried about whether they're taking their medication, but they may be worried about whether their children are going to have food on the table. And so it's, it is, it is complex, but we're hopefully moving in the right direction so that, you know, people, people have as much opportunity as they, as they can get. It's very satisfying. I love my job and taking care of my patients. They're amazing people. They have this horrible disease, right? So stress causes crisis. So they're studying for finals or they're preparing for their wedding or whatever it is and, or their graduation. So right. The, the, this season's usually a tough one because people are graduating and there's so much stress in finals that they get a crisis and they miss their graduation. All of a sudden that you'll have this severe painful episode. And so you, whatever plans you make, you just never know if you're going to be able to go through with them because you could have a painful event and end up in an emergency room somewhere. And yet these patients are amazing. They're like, they live amazing lives. They take care of their families. They set their priorities. They're just amazing, amazing people. I would not function as well if I had sickle cell disease, that is for sure. Wow. She talked about the socioeconomic. It's just think about these kids since the age of seven months, eight months, start having extremely painful crises and that they're in school. They're missing weeks of school. They're not learning at the same pace, not just because of the disease process causing strokes and medical conditions, but they can't physically be in school because of the severe pain that they're going through. They're stigmatized as being slackers or or people who are actively avoiding school when they're trying to succeed in these things. So there's so many different barriers. This is ex- excluding all the socioeconomical race components on top of that. But you just put those physical limitations on somebody, it's going to be difficult to succeed. And then you add on all these other layers of bias that are added on. It, it becomes so overwhelming. It's so... Um it feels very, obviously very intense. Um, and I can also understand how it's a, a profession of passion, right? It, you really, I would venture to guess that there isn't a day where it's highly complex, highly emotionally charged, but also um, the, the opportunity to really serve and, and make a difference is, is significant. Right. I mean, the patients are, are my family, right? They know about my boys and my husband, and right? There's, and I know about their kids. And so, you know, it's this, this, you know, long time, right? But that's what it's like with our patients, right? It's that, you know, they all know about me. His patients all know about me and Mike and the kids. And it's, it's, they're. An extended family. It's different. Yeah, it feels very, um, it's it's holistic. It's very it's there's a sudden element of it that's wholesome, uh, which is inspiring. Sophie, with your permission, uh, I, I want to mention that your father uh, passed away, I believe, two months ago, uh, approximately. Approximately, mm-hmm. and some of the stories you've shared with me about him left a, a deep impression on me. You mentioned earlier on in our conversation that uh, you know he didn't become a doctor and 
and wanted you to become a doctor. And that may have given the impression that he he wasn't professionally successful, which is not at all the case. By way of tribute to his life, if you could just tell us just a, a two-minute kind of synopsis of his contribution, his major contribution uh, to humanity. Yeah, no, my dad was an amazing guy, right? So born in Germany, left at the very last minute without his parents, left with just his brother, got beaten up on the border, made their way to Palestine, fought in the war of 48, got shot in the head a couple of times, one really bad but recovered, was a really smart guy who um, basically also got thrown out of high school, I think, although he claims that's not the case, but I, he was thrown out just because he was he, he was just one of those difficult, bright people. So he never really graduated high school, but he took the exams, whatever the exams are you take to get into college. Other places applied to a bunch of schools in the States because he decided he wanted to go to, state, to the States because he was going to run away from home because his parents were very politically connected and he didn't want to be in Israeli politics. But right, he met all of those guys, Moshe Dayan, and all the all the, the big wigs who would come and meet his his grandfather, who was part of the Zionist movement and went to Zionist Congress and was very involved in, in developing Israel. And so he applied to a bunch of places and got accepted in, in, in the University of Wisconsin. So he went from Israel to Wisconsin uh, with no money, and he initially moved refrigerators, and then he taught at the local. Hebrew school and got his bachelor's and master's and PhD in five years um, as an electrical engineer. He taught himself to read English. Oh, he did teach himself to read English. Yeah, he knew English. Before he got his bachelor's, he just had to quickly brush up on how to read English. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So he got all that in five years. And um, this was at the time when we were, you know, in the space race. So we started at... um, Lockheed Martin, right? Lockheed Martin and uh, was helping build rockets in the Gemini and then went to NASA and was was built the, the capsules, had directors of building the capsules, pieces of which I have sitting in my living room. And um, we all went for when Apollo 11 took off, we all were there in Florida. My brother actually got to go there, but I was in a hotel close by. and um, And... And then he left and he went to Raytheon and he built the air traffic control radar system with Raytheon and automated the Washington Post. And then in his retirement, the German government invited him back as a consultant and paid him a lot of money to work on their air traffic control system. Oh, and he worked with Werner von Braun with NASA. and The original rockets. Yeah, and the original rockets. So, yeah, no. Just to, just to state it explicitly. I don't want to suggest that you can even do justice to the richness of his life in yeah. the two minutes that you you summarized it. Yeah. Um, but he, um, I, I tell you one thing that I, I think about a lot ever since I, I experienced you talk about your father, his level of accomplishment, no matter the amount of uh, adversity he faced, was extraordinary. And, you know, he, he was literally a, a space, you know, he literally built space rockets yeah. uh, and, and uh, got man to the moon and did that in the face of, of being a survivor. It's really a truly remarkable story. And I, I didn't want to kind of have this conversation without paying tribute to him and, and uh, his continued impact on, I know, on the two of you and, and on others who hit, hit the stories about his life. And he um, loved his family and his grandchildren and, right, he... You know, would do anything for it, for us. Which, yeah. 
always home. I, you know, he worked with total workaholic, but he was always home for Shabbos dinner, always, and for Shabbos, always. Wow. And you can imagine he was trying to put a man in space, but he had to go home for Shabbos dinner. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Wow. By way of conclusion, I, I am asking everyone just to uh, reflect on the experience that you've had over these last couple of months and really, I guess, just share what, what's on your mind. You know, what, what have you been thinking about? Not necessarily medically, but, you know, what have you been reflecting upon during these very peculiar times? I don't know, right? I think losing my dad in the midst of it has really, you know, gives it a different, very different, a very surreal kind of feeling to it all, right? That I, I think, especially for what I do, that this pandemic has really uncovered this big, you know, disparity in care for people, you know, of color in this country. And I, and I really, really hope, and I, I, you know, it's interesting, even though I've been doing this for so many years, I've learned so much about racism in this country since this has happened that I don't think I ever really understood. And I, and I work with such a diverse group of people. And, and I think people have been trying to tell me, but you, you, you just couldn't see what it was. And I, and I really hope that out of this, that, that we're able as a country to move forward in a way where we can change the way this country has treated people of color uh, and, and that, that it really makes the, an enormous dramatic change that we haven't seen in a, in a very long time or ever here. That, yeah. That's what I hope we can take away from all of this. What about you, Daniel? So it's interesting. We, I think we, at face value, look at SARS-CoV-2 as a as a physical disease that it, as you said, it maybe causes pneumonia, maybe causes heart attack, cause, certainly causes kidney failure. Um, it may be a hematological disease. But the psychological impact that it's had, so I, I had the opportunity to speak, speak with my mother once a week on Sundays, and the, the sheer depression that I hear in her voice, the fact that she's been physically isolated from everybody, the lack of physical contact, the lack of emotional support, doesn't matter how much Zoom meetings we do, how many phone calls we do, physical contact is so important for humans. And whether it's getting together for a minion at a shul, whether it's sitting down for a Shabbos dinner, whether it's just having friends over, not having those interactions is devastating to the country, to us as people. I think I've been very fortunate in that because what I do, I actually get to see my patients four days a week. I actually go in and sit down with them and talk with them and face-to-face -face with them. And it's very unusual because they can't get to see their doctors, and yet they still see me. And there's a community there. There's that support system. And in a population of people who you think would do terribly because of the immunocompromised state, because of the, the high-risk population that they are, our patients, my patients at least, are doing better than the majority of the patients out there, I think because of the physical contact that we're having, that we're, even though we're maintaining distance, they're, they're in a community, in community. supportive to them. And it goes back to community. And so here's a virus that's taken away our community. And so it's a, it's a psychological virus more than a hematological or a respiratory or infectious or however you want to classify it. it this has been a psychological assault on our, on, on us as people and, and, 
you know, we have to do what we can to maintain our humanity, to maintain our compassion and everything. Sophie said, I couldn't agree with more that, that there's all these layers that are being, they're shining a light on the disproportionate treatment of or mistreatment of um, minorities and, and, and populations on the, on the fringe. And it's, it's, it just makes us reevaluate those things. Daniel and Sophie, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, being brave and professional in your in your medical uh, in your medical professions and being such a special part of our community. And uh, I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, I know it's busy, 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 um, and spending a few minutes just talking about what you do, uh, I find very inspiring and very meaningful. So I really appreciate it. Uh, send my best to your kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, please, God, we'll see you at, at Minion next time we get together. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you for having us, Rabbi. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Have a great night. Thank you, Sophie and Daniel, for sharing those really meaningful stories. While you obviously cannot capture the true essence of a family, in these short few minutes, we know that we have uh, feel very blessed to have the Salzburg in our community and uh, very grateful for uh, all of the good work that they do. People of PJC is an audio project of our community, the Pikesville Jewish Congregation, where we share our stories and we listen to each other. I'm Rabbi Yechiel Schaffer, the rabbi of the Pikesville Jewish Congregation. To learn more about our community, to listen to other episodes, please visit pikesvillejewish.com or subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This has been a project of the members of our community, the people of PJC.